Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. This guy's problem is the problem many of us and people that we know have struggled with, and and that's thinking, well, I'm trying so hard, that has to count for something. And God's saying, no, your best efforts, are we really thinking our good intentions somehow could equate with the death he died, the suffering he endured, the blood he shed? The cross is where we find justification for sin. Taking up where we left off yesterday, we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, The Great Commandment. We're in Luke chapter 10, and we'll begin today in verse 29 as Jesus gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan in response to the lawyer's question, Who is my neighbor? We'll also look at the exchange between Martha and Mary when Mary chose to sit at the feet of Jesus rather than serve. So let's listen in. To to say, I tried, Lord. But I failed. I mean, I want to love God with all that's in me, but but I, I just, man, I'm so selfish and so self-centered and so stupid. And, 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 and I want to love people practically and meet their needs. But again, the whole selfish thing kind of gets in the way. And in other words, if he had said, that's impossible, at least for me, what can I do? What should I do? How do I deal with this issue? Well, Jesus not only has the solution, he is the solution. You point him to the cross. That's where he takes us. The answer is the cross. Paul in Romans 3 says, we know whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, this guy would qualify, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. What Paul, and Paul's a scholar himself, a Pharisee, but a very solid theologian. And what he's saying is, God never intended the law to, to you know, not to, I mean, well, okay, he gives it to us so we can know absolutely and clearly, so we can see it in black and white or in his day, in stone, that we could, could know this is what God wants, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, this is what's acceptable, this is what's unacceptable, this is what's holy, this is what's impure. And so he said he never intended people to look at the law and justify themselves by it. In other words, I look at it and I say, okay, it says not to steal. Well, I don't. And it says not to lie, and I don't. And it says not to, to do this, and I don't. That's the mindset that these guys had. But the law was supposed to convict them of sin. And he says, by the law, no one will be justified. And here's why. No one but Jesus ever kept the law. I know I've shared that with you in the past. You'll probably hear it if you keep coming. You'll hear it a hundred times in the next year or two or five. Because because. The whole idea that there's something I can do, whether it's keeping laws or joining a church or not doing this or doing that or serving or giving or sacrificing. Read 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if you were to give it all and even your body to be burned, but you had not love, nothing, no profit to you, no benefit, no blessing in that. He says there is a righteousness that's acceptable to him, and it's the righteousness of God apart from the law. It's revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. They both point to 
the need for justification by faith. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe there is no difference for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by the grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This guy's problem is the problem many of us and people that we know have struggled with. And and that's thinking, well, I'm trying so hard. That has to count for something. And God's saying, no, your best efforts. Are we really thinking our good intentions somehow could equate with the death he died, the suffering he endured, the blood he shed? The cross is where we find justification for sin. That's how and why God can deal with me and with you just as if I'd never sinned, just as if you'd never sinned. And so the righteousness of God, apart from the law, the law convicts, but the blood of Christ cleanses. The the law condemns, but the blood of Christ brings forgiveness and redemption. Well, Jesus answers him, and he tells him a little story. And I like what he does here because... He takes something that, well, it's very, um, at this point, academic. In other words, what does it say? What do you think about it? What do you feel? Or, you know, are you processing it? Are you connecting the dots? And then he begins to explain to him exactly what loving your neighbor looks like. And the guy's question again, remember, is he wants to justify himself. So he says, who is my neighbor? Exactly who are we talking about here? In his mind, said it would have been his Jewish brethren. Jesus is going to stretch him a bit. Jesus answered and said, verse 30, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed him, leaving him half dead. The Jericho Road, first century, very dangerous, about a 17-mile journey. It descended through very mountainous areas, steep cliffs, narrow roads. There were just places for the bandits to hide out, come and take you on and do you in and get out of there. And, And so it was a dangerous area. Everybody knew it to be that. So he tells a story of something that they say, yeah, I've, I've heard that. And I, I know somebody that happened to, you know. And so it's not just like sort of a vague, well, I guess something like that could happen. No, they, they knew this kind of stuff happened. It happened, he says, by chance, a certain priest came down the road. And when he saw me pass by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Now, priests and Levites hung out with the scribes. They're sort of the religious inner circle establishment. There were Pharisees and Sadducees, but, but these guys were like, they'd be hanging, they'd be talking, they'd, they'd be friends. So when he says the priest comes, he sees the need and he's like, oh, I don't want to get involved in that. He just goes to the other side of the road. And then the Levite does the same. He looks, he sees the need, and he's like, oh, I don't know. It doesn't say why they didn't minister to this guy's needs. I mean, there were potential dangers. They might have been in danger themselves. If the guy was dead and maybe they couldn't tell, to touch a dead body if you were them would defile you and render you unfit for worship or service. Or And these are religious guys. But... 
you know, they see a need and they just pass by. Now, the hero of the story is a Samaritan. And it's interesting because centurions, Roman soldiers, they had a hundred guys under them. Samaritans, those who were from the northern kingdom there in Israel, who intermarried, they're, they're the people after the... Assyrians took the northern ten tribes captive. Uh, they, they brought people into the land. They had left some in the land, bringing people from other communities. And, and so these people intermarried. So they're not pure-blooded. They're, they're not real Jews in the sight of the Jewish people down south. So we touched on this with James and John, not really liking Samaritans and Samaritans feeling the same. So, so here's the deal. In our story, the Samaritan is the hero. Why? Because Jesus is trying to expand this guy's horizons. He says, who is my neighbor? Jesus is going to turn that question around. But, but he says, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. That word compassion is so important. It only appears 12 times in the New Testament, all of them in the Gospels. The very first time it appears is when Jesus, seeing the multitudes, had compassion upon them. It says he was moved with compassion. And so he taught them and he fed them and ministered to their needs, healing them and such. The last time will be in our story of the the prodigal son in Luke 15, where the father, seeing the prodigal returning, had compassion on him, was moved with compassion. And here's why it's such an important word. I can feel sorry for people and do nothing for them. I can have sympathy for people and and still not do a thing to alleviate their suffering. But if I have real compassion, compassion always moves me to action. It's like biblical faith. Faith without works, James tells us, is dead. Because biblical faith moves us to do something to demonstrate that faith. So it is with compassion. Well, he has compassion. What does that look like practically? He went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. He he ministered to his medical needs, to his injuries with the best medicine he had there. He had bandages, he had oil, he had wine. He did all that he could do medically. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Twice it says he took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. Whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So he actually takes the guy's need and debt upon himself. I'll pay for his lodging. I got to go. I'll be back. When I come back, I will pay if it costs any more than I've already paid. So, so here's a guy fully extending himself, not worried about his own safety, not worried about if he's defiled. Well, Samaritans were considered defiled already, so he probably wasn't sweating that one. But the bottom line is, he is doing everything he can do in order to take care of this stranger. And he said, take care of him. Again, I'll come Again, and I will repay you. That phrase, I'll come again and repay you, reminds me that the one who came and lived among us and suffered and died for us was buried, rose again, ascended into heaven. He's coming again. 
And when he comes, he's going to repay each and every one of us. No act of kindness, no mercy shown to another will go unrewarded. He says we can't give a cup of cold water to someone in his name without setting up a, a, a you know a coming reward and, and and so when we're ministering he's paying attention when we've done it to the least of these my brethren you've done it he says unto me well anyway he asked the lawyer the scribe so verse 36 which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves now notice how wise our Lord was, how together our Lord is in bringing him to a right conclusion. I mean, you'd have to be pretty out of it to not be able to connect these dots. Okay, let's see. One guy does nothing. The other guy does nothing. This guy does everything more than most would. Which one? And, and note the, the, you know, the, the way Jesus changes the question. He said, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, which of them was a neighbor to him? I think he's really trying to say, hey, this is really what it's about. It's not who's your neighbor, but who are you a neighbor to? And how would you know? Well, he says, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do do." Likewise, so Jesus, you know, concludes with this question, followed by a command. The lawyer says, who's my neighbor? He says, who are you a neighbor to, in essence? And when he says, go and do likewise, again, I think he means that he and we would take that literally. It's not hard to find a wounded stranger. Oh, not everybody looks beat up on the outside, but there's a lot of people that are worn down and stressed out and struggling, worried, concerned. And, and you know, just to have somebody say, hey, you doing okay? Can I pray for you? Can there some way I can pray for you? It's not a small thing. It's not always all we should do, but it's certainly one thing we can all do. If we don't have a way to meet any other need, we can say, let me pray that God shows himself strong on your behalf. Let me pray that God restores your strength or, or gives you a job or, or helps you deal with that issue or, or gives you wisdom with your kids or, or heals your marriage or the many, many things that people are dealing with as we meet. Now, if you need to minister to a wounded stranger, I just encourage you, when you introduce yourself to people, try to remember their name and then, then say, before you leave, hey, is there anything I can be praying for you this week? You'll be surprised. People, and maybe you're one of them, go through some pretty heavy things. And, and, and so, again, go and do likewise. I love how he leads them to the answer. If you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you're a pastor, or if you're a leader, you need to follow his example. We need to help people connect the dots. And then we need to make sure. And, and here's one of the things that I've learned and observed over the years. I'll teach through the word. It'll be so simple and so clear to me. But, of course, I spent hours and hours and hours preparing and dwelling. And I'm already familiar. And, and so I, I think, well, everybody's going to get that. And, and then someone will come up with a question. And I'll think, but they didn't get it at all. And I know I'm doing a real good job. So it must be something wrong with them. And, and, and so, 
So I'll be like, hey, I just taught that. I mean, where were you? You know, you look like you woke refreshed. And But, but anyway, no, that, here's what the Lord has shown me. And I'm kidding about that part. Here's what the Lord showed me is that if someone comes up and they're not connecting the dots, the Lord is bringing them up so I can make sure that they do. Because not all of us automatically see how these things apply to the everydayness of our situations. To the things we're going through. And that's why he said formal teaching, that's what we're doing here. And informal teaching, as we walk down the road, as we rise up, as we lie down, that's going to happen within the context of your family. So, so he, he's given us the picture, he's showing us all we need in order to fulfill it. Well, a couple other great examples as we get to the end of the chapter. Very short illustration as as we're introduced to Mary, the diligent student, and Martha, the dutiful servant. Both of these, by the way, take us from loving our neighbor to loving God. Two ways we can love God. Well, we can obey Him. Study His Word. We can obey Him. Serve Him by serving one another and serving people around us. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's what our Lord has to say, right? So they enter a certain village, verse 38. certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who also sat at the feet of Jesus and heard his word. So two sisters. Jesus often visits these guys. They live in Bethany. Their brother is Lazarus who Jesus will raise from the dead. Uh, One of these, Mary, will be one of those who breaks a precious ointment and anoints him prior to his burial. There are some radical, wonderful pictures and scenes that happen with these disciples. Lazarus, Mary, Martha, they are disciples of Jesus. They have open hearts and an open home. He's often with them when he's in the area. And so anyway, we have Martha serving and and we're called to serve. We're being equipped for the work of ministry. That's what studying is supposed to produce. Christ-likeness and Jesus, of course, said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. So we represent him. We follow in his footsteps by serving. And so serving the Lord, absolutely blessed by it. Studying, sitting at his feet, longing to hear his word, loving on him. You've got to know he's into that as well. In fact, we're going to find that between the two, nothing's more important to the Lord than your relationship with the Lord. And that all the service needs to flow out of that relationship, be a result of that relationship. So anyway, Mary's sitting And Martha's serving. But verse 40, Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, and I'm sure some of you, if you've never said these exact words, you felt like this or said something similar. Lord, don't you care? My sister's left me to serve alone. And then she actually says, therefore, tell her to help me. Now, you can say a lot of things to the Lord, but tell her this or tell him that or, Lord, get them to do this. And here's, again, what's happening. She's serving, and that's well and good. But in the midst of her service, she's looking at her sister and thinking, she's just sitting there. I'm working so hard. I'm sweating. I got the pots and pans going. I'm going to burn the bread. And she's just sitting 
And so she actually accuses the Lord of not caring. I want to tell you, that's something you don't want to do. I know that happens to people. They go through serious situations. And they're like, if the Lord really cared, why wouldn't he do what we needed? Why didn't he do what we asked? Because he always does what's best. And the issue here is she first accuses him of not caring and then demands that he do something that would make her life easier. Elijah found himself hiding after facing off the 450 prophets of Baal, taking on the 400 prophets of Asherah. He finds out that Jezebel has a contract on his life, and he's scared to death of her. I mean, a guy can take a 950 guys, but one woman terrifies him. And, and here he is hiding out and, and running from her, and he, and, he, and he just says, Lord, you know, you're, you're, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. God's response to Elijah in the midst of his discouragement and depression. I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He's saying, I have 7,000 ewes. I know you feel alone. I know you think you're doing this all on your own. But, but you're not. And as we serve the Lord, if we find ourselves like Martha, doing what we know God gifted us to do, and we're right where we're supposed to be, but all of a sudden we're starting to look on others and compare ourselves to them, and they're coming out unfavorable in the comparison. We're getting critical, and we're starting to complain, and we're starting to think something's wrong with the Lord, and why doesn't he get these people with the program? Listen to Jesus' words. He says to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. One thing is needed. It was my brother who I first heard say it when we were in Israel. Nothing is more important to God than your relationship to him. And he's saying, listen, she's right where I want her. Listening, loving on me, soaking in my word. Every time you find Mary, you find her at the feet of Jesus. Are we saying it's better to just sit than to serve? No. But I would suggest to you that if you're serving and you're starting to get a little bit like Martha here, well, then you need to make sure you sit at the feet of Jesus first. And if you're one of those people that serves all week long and you go to one service and, and you're like, by the end of the week or by the middle of the week, you're just feeling dry and beat up and worn out and stressed and, and wondering, where's all the others? Man, here's the deal. You just get back to the feet of Jesus. Mentioned it earlier. Your kids need you to take them through the word. Don't rely on an hour or two with the Sunday school teacher a week. They need you to disciple them. And I'm so grateful for the many who are helping to teach the hundreds of kids God has entrusted to us. Your kids and mine and our grandkids. And But the bottom line is they need you to do it. And, and here's the wonder of it. If you'll just focus on them, well, then you'll have to get in the Word in order to minister to them. And as you get into the Word, you'll be sitting in His feet. And when it's time to serve, you'll be, you'll be like a sponge that's just soaked in so much. It's just you're dripping with the goodness of God and the grace of God. You won't be complaining and comparing. You'll be thanking the Lord. 
that he's given you opportunity to serve. In the book of Revelation chapter 2, Jesus has words for the church and us in his letter to the church of Ephesus. Revelation 2 verses 3 and 4 say, You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. No matter how hard we work and how diligently we serve, we must love the Lord with all of our soul, strength, and mind. If, as we serve, we find ourselves growing weary and we lose the delight we once had in serving, take the Lord's advice where he tells us to repent and do our first works. What were those first works? Sitting at the feet of the Lord as Mary did, listening to his word, singing praises to him, talking to him. Just make sure your works have not replaced spending time with him and loving him. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.